Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hire the Smile, discussing all things related to human resources in the veterinary profession. I'm Mike Pownell, and as usual, I am joined by Katie Arline. Hey, Katie, how are you? Hey, Michael, I'm doing well, thanks. Last time we spoke, you were in the midst of doing a WACO employee engagement surveys. What's new and where are you at? What are you doing now? Yeah, honestly, still working on employee engagement surveys. So we've got a couple of them going simultaneously. So that's really been occupying a lot of my time. It's always just so interesting to hear people's perspectives on on their workplace and how they feel and the impact that the company's culture has on them. Excellent. So as we were thinking of what to discuss, and we all sort of get together, like what's current, what have we read or listened to podcasts? I was listening to a podcast with Amy Edmonston. And Amy mm. is, when is she? I think she's a professor at Harvard Business School. And she is sort of the guru on psychological safety in the workplace. And we'll get into what psychological safety is, but this really ties into an overarching theme that we encounter with clients, big lessons I learned in my own veterinary practice about having a safe environment to make mistakes, Mm. but also having a safe environment to speak out and to share maybe opinions that aren't status quo, aren't the same as management and engaging and accepting differing viewpoints. And I think it's such a critical part of a successful practice that you you have these things. And I think with uh, vet professionals, you know, mistakes can be catastrophic, but I think we see a lot of practices where the fear of making a mistake is so profound Mm -hmm. that people almost become paralyzed. Yeah, it's crippling. Absolutely. So the article I start with is four steps to boost psychological safety at your workplace with, uh, as I said, Dr. Amy C. Edmonston and her colleague in this article, Per Hugender. And basically it's from the June 22nd, 2021 Harvard Business Review. And of course, we'll have a link to this in the show notes. As we said before, psychological safety is having an environment where candor and vulnerability are welcome. And you would think that this should be mainstay in a lot of practices, but it's not in a lot of businesses. So it's one area where everybody's looking around. Should I say this? Is it safe to say this? Oh, made a mistake. What do I do about that? Don't want to disagree with my boss. I don't Mm -hmm. want to ask too many questions, but really what we want is people to be able to exchange ideas, own up when things didn't go as well. And, uh, learn from that. 
so what we basically see that, you know, what she says is a psychological safety is kind of like, kind of like majorly valuable in any business that faces uncertainty uh, or has a need for innovation. So taking this back to the vet profession, like A, if you're a business in the world right now, uh, end of June, 2022, uncertainty is like, it's all we're living in right now. It's uncertain. Every day is uncertain. But in terms of what we do as veterinarians, we have an expected outcome, but there's uncertainty all the time. We have an industry with so many variabilities. So this is an area that uh, psychological safety really, really shows up. Katie, before I get into how to ensure that your business has psychological safety, in your experiences, as we were talking about doing employee engagement surveys, where do you see many practices falling down on having that psychologically safe environment? I think, honestly, the number one thing that I see that's a detriment is when staff do go and they do, you know, get their gumption together to provide feedback to management or leadership, it either comes back to bite them directly, you know, they get in trouble for it, or they get ostracized, or there's some kind of consequence, you know, that that unfortunately does happen. But I think another thing also is that staff often see I give the feedback and nothing happens. So it must not be important. So what's the point? And, you know, they're like, obviously my, my voice isn't valued here, but I think that fear of repercussions is so prevalent and it it shows in different ways at different practices, but I'd say that that's a pretty big theme. Right. And so what she has found, uh, Dr. Edmondson, is that when businesses have a large amount of psychological safety, they make better decisions, they make quicker decisions. Basically, what they have to do for these businesses transition from uh, a business, let's say, that has less psychological safety to those that have more is that almost that you have to slow down to speed up. Mm. And so we're going to get into the four steps that what she says is really essential to develop psychological safety in the business. It basically should apply to any business where communication and honest, candid, in the moment communication should happen i.e. a veterinary practice. So one of the things is really focusing on performance. And so when she says performance, it's really try to integrate ideas and expertise of multiple people. Mm. And we need to be able to speak it. So it was a great example. Something's not going right in the OR. And so you have the veterinarians, you have the technicians, you have assistants, all of them should be in a position to be able to speak candidly. You know, I, I remember when I was doing my MBA, we did uh, another Harvard article a few years old talking about how uh, human operating rooms, uh, if they don't have psychological safety, mistakes are at a higher level than those that have more candor where people can speak, where the surgeon is less like, I'm the surgeon, everybody shut up and do what I'm yeah. telling you to do, which happens. Yep. And I know a lot of people are listening to this and sort of like, oh, yeah, it mm-hmm. happens. And mm-hmm. so when we can have that kind of candor and the willingness to speak candidly in a timely manner, like as it happens, not like a week later, two weeks later, or, you know, like, let's get to it right, 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 right away. You know, so how do we do this? And so it's one thing to say, hey, kids, let's all be candid. How do we demonstrate it? One thing to say it. How do you do it? So. What they talk about is really help the individuals practice these new interpersonal skills and, you know, in regularly scheduled safe sessions. So you can sort of 
all right, hey, we had an operation today. It didn't go work. Let's talk about it. And as the leader or the surgeon or somebody that's in that power of authority, you know, quote unquote authority, they have to start off with like, okay, we're going to let's discuss it and, and lead by example. Any, anything that you'd want to add to that, Katie, from your experience? No, I think that having, and I will talk about it a bit more here as far as breaking down, you know, after the fact what happens, but I think, you know, you have to sort of lay the groundwork for having these conversations and really having people understand that we're not looking to blame people. We're just trying to figure out how to do things better. Yeah. We'll talk about blame culture here in a a little while, but it's so important to be open. Yeah. And one of the things they said is really encourage people as part of the team to share stories that Mm -hmm. talk about how candor, vulnerability really enables successful outcomes. I have found that myself to be very successful of like, hey, this happened and uh, able to us as a group talk about it when it happened five, 10 years ago. We're able to come back out with better procedures, better patient outcomes, client outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so with that, obviously, the next number two is to train individuals and teams. And so they use a sports analogy. So if you're an athlete on a team sport, you have individuals have individual skills. So if you're going to use basketball, like they use, you know, dribbling or shooting, but then there's team practice where you're passing and working together in the game. So really uh, as leaders, we have to learn about, we have to practice these skills ourselves and then bring it into the group. Pretty self-explanatory and Mm -hmm. really feeds on or flows well from the first point. Third one is interesting. It's not something that I have worked with before, but I thought that was interesting to discuss is incorporate visualization. So in various settings, they talk again from athletes where you sort of think about how you want things to work out and you visualize how it is. Uh, And then as a group, you can sort of say, hey, this is what I thought we were able to do. And then again, comes back down to the group and being able to speak candidly and make sure everybody are sharing their experiences. And so we can ask about how would this look in the future? So we had this error in the OR what would the future surgery look like if we made these changes? So I thought that was pretty cool to talk about that. Yeah. And then really, I think the last one is um, normalizing vulnerability related to work. So Mm -hmm. it's really normal to experience anxiety as a consequence of feeling vulnerable. But what they said is that research on anxiety training shows that practicing small acts of vulnerability reduces that anxiety putting your training wheels on, open up a little bit, open up a little bit, admit we've made a mistake ourselves and talk about how other people have made mistakes in your presence and how you resolve it. The more we can do it, then it becomes like a muscle that you can flex. Yeah. So important. It's that individual impact, but we really have to encourage the team. And I think, I don't know, I think in our experiences that could take a varying amount of time. It's other people, if they see the leader become vulnerable and, and it's a safe environment, everybody engages quickly. Obviously, there's a high level of trust, mm-hmm. but if somebody has been, um, I hate to pick on surgeons, but I mean, if you're in a situation where you lash out or, you know, people get into a bad mood when they've been questioned, it may take a little bit longer for that safe environment to be maintained and for it to persist. Mm, love that segue. Moving on to talking a little bit about the idea of what to do when mistakes or errors happen. One of the articles that I picked up on here, it's called Blame Culture is Toxic and Here's How to Stop It. It's uh, by Michael Timms. It's in the Harvard Business Review from February of this year. 
And just right along with what you were saying, there was a study that was done in the 1970s by a gentleman named John Gottman. It's sort of like a watershed type study uh, who he determined that it takes five positive experiences to equal out one negative one. So if you're thinking about trust and you're thinking about ways that that trust can be canceled out, you know, think about that. You always think, oh, and now I have to build trust back. And they're like, geez, it takes a really long time. But that negativity can just undo all, you know, good things that you've been doing. There's another study in 2001 that said that brain responds more strongly to bad experiences than good ones. And we retain memories about bad experiences longer than we retain memories about good experiences. I guess that's kind of like our adaptation is if you see a lion on the savannas, we remember that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the article goes on to say that the most lethal behavior in organizations is really blame, but we're actually wired to blame. You know, it's hard to make ourselves overcome the urge to like find somebody to blame when something happens that shouldn't happen. The article says that this is driven by fundamental attribution bias. So we tend to think that what people do is a reflection of who they are, rather than considering there may be other factors influencing their behavior. You know, we all, we say this again and again and again, when we say don't assume, you can't make up a story about somebody's motivations in your head without talking to them. And this goes right along with that. What people do isn't necessarily a reflection of who they are. There's so many things that go into why people act the way they do. There's also recent research out of Duke that shows that positive events are processed by the prefrontal cortex, which tends to conclude that good things happen by fluke. On the other hand, negative events are processed by the amygdala, uh, which concludes that bad things happen on purpose. So again, you know, bad things, purposeful, good things happen by fluke. So the consequence is for the person being blamed, the prefrontal cortex shuts down and we direct all our energy to defending ourselves. So it sabotages our ability to solve the problem that we're being blamed for because we're just sort of on defense mode. And also, you know, blame kills accountability. If you're in a blame type culture, nobody's going to take accountability for problems if they feel like they'll be punished for it. I mean, why would you? And learning and problem solving don't happen in blame cultures. People hide their mistakes instead of learning from them. And I think, you know, you can see the downward spiral that that could uh, definitely cause. So the article goes on to talk about how we can overcome a blame culture. And, you know, going along with what you said, you alluded to in your article, Mike, we need to switch our mindset to this whole, you know, we're all still learning and share your mistakes. This comes up again and again, share your mistakes, share your vulnerability, use them as teaching moments. Talk about what you learn from your mistakes, creating that psychological safe space that you talked about. Again, the lessons learned debrief at the end of a project, understand what went right and what went wrong, what we can attribute it to and how we can use the information in future situations. Focusing on what you can change. You can't change other people despite our best efforts or maybe our worst efforts. Uh, blame makes us passive, unaccountable victims, and it, it discourages accountability in others by passing the buck. So it's thinking not whose fault is this, but where did this process break down? And I think that this, that's a big one. I hadn't really thought about it necessarily, but definitely pushing blame around does make us unaccountable. You know, it makes us sort of that victim mentality. It's like this happened to me and there's nothing we can do about it. And being able to pass the buck, it's like, well, nobody ends up being accountable. It just sort of devolves into this lack of trust and just sort of, okay, we'll wait till the next screw up happens. As you're talking, I'm thinking of various scenarios. And as I'm talking, you may recognize them. It's tough because 
I hope I don't go too far in the weeds on this, but it's one thing if you have an organization that's stable and you've been working with the same people for a number of years, mm-hmm. I think, you know, you can then be able to develop trust. There's, you know, the people you're working with, but we're bringing on new vets from vet school or new technicians. We don't know where they've come from. So what I have seen is you're talking about, we don't know where people, you know, it's not the person so much is that, you know, if they may have worked somewhere before and if something happened or a mistake happened, you know, the leader might've just lost their temper and yelling. And, and, you know, so you, you have built in behaviors that have been reinforced over and over again. Mistakes are bad. It's hard when you have new people, but I think what's even more critical is as veterinarians and in veterinary schools, we don't always see the best behavior from our instructors. Mm. You know, I've been out for 20 odd years, but when I talk to students still or new vets that join us, it, it happens. And I have seen a people that don't want to admit that they're wrong. But the other thing that I've seen a lot of is they mimic the behavior of leaders that they have seen, and they think that's the way it goes. And we have both seen some veterinarians that just lash out mm-hmm. big time when other people make mistakes. And I find it so hard to get those people to say, that's not the way to do it because they've seen Dr. So-and-so who is the world expert in so-and-so or what have you do it at school. And I think, well, that's just normal behavior. So sometimes it can be really hard to get around that. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, going back to what you were first talking about and having folks come on to work on our teams that are, you know, you don't know what their background is. I think this really underscores the importance of making sure people understand how things work at your practice. And that's beyond, you know, how to answer the phone, or this is how we do surgery packs here or whatever. It's more of this is how the inner workings of the social scene works here. And this is how we deal with things. And even better if it's part of your core values so that people can be held accountable for it. But again, it really jumps out to me that you have to be deliberate when you have people come on. And this goes back to onboarding and the importance that goes along with making sure people understand the expectations right from the beginning. There's nothing worse than six months later and somebody's been acting a certain way and they just didn't know what the expectations were. There's something that you were dealing with in your practice right now. And, you know, I was thinking about it last night and it was like, did we actually outline what the expectations for behavior are here? So, you know, before we get too angry about something, like, is there something that we did that was wrong? Is there something that we did that contributed to this problem? And I think that goes a long way also towards building that safety, building that trust. People know like you're going to get your say. It's not just going to be like a firing squad. You're going to be able to to have a discussion about this and it's the behavior. It's not the person. And it, it can be hard to separate that. And the article talks about that. So, you know, again, the article says, and we've said it before a million times, including 10 seconds ago, ask yourself how you may have contributed to this problem. How can you approach this with an open mindset? Uh, and, you know, I, it was really interesting. We've had Dr. Tova Caldwell on the podcast and she was doing uh, staff meetings at your practice last week. And I sat in on one of them and I thought it was really interesting how she said, I knew this, but I hadn't thought about this before. But when you assume something about somebody, it removes your ability to be empathetic towards them. So when you've mm-hmm. already put the story together, you already can judge jury and executioner somebody it's hard for you to break through that and really be able to be empathetic and to see their side. So I think having that open mindset is part of it too. I really like the way that she put that. I thought it was really impactful. Yeah. I, I picked up on that too. And I was like being frontline with um, 
pet owners, we're often much more forgiving with pet owners mm-hmm. than we are with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so somebody doesn't want to do a procedure or doesn't want to pay it. We all we all can think of a reason why they can justify what what their actions are. We rarely will do that with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Just be gentle with each other. <laughs> it's super cheesy sounding, like but that. like just be like gentle with yourself and gentle with other people. And it's just uh just so much more collaborative than jumping into something and just assuming or yeah. assuming bad intent from the other person. They might not even know that they bugged you. Exactly. That's our good old soapbox. Yeah. So I thought that that was a really interesting article. Um, Before we move on to the next one, I thought we'd just take a little break here. Do you sense that there's something not quite right with your company's culture? Is your team functioning below its potential with formerly enthusiastic staff now doing the bare minimum? Do you wish you could get an honest report card on your practice's culture and the impression you are making as an owner or a manager? It can be difficult to take action when you don't know what's wrong. If we don't address issues and challenges, we risk losing even our most dedicated and loyal staff. We don't always have a reliable way to get honest feedback on how people feel about the company or even on our own performance as owners or managers. This is where the Oculus Employee Engagement Survey comes in. Employee engagement is defined as the degree to which employees are willing to go above and beyond to ensure their teammates and clients are taken care of, and it also measures the level of commitment that they have to your organization. Highly engaged workforces contribute positively to the bottom line in a number of ways, including higher productivity, fewer mistakes, and better client care, just to name a few. The employee engagement survey itself is a series of 33 questions based on the key dimensions of employee engagement with areas for comments from staff. The survey itself is a series of 33 confidential questions based on the key dimensions of employee engagement with an area for comments from your staff. We also conduct optional one-on-one interviews with experienced Oculus professionals to gain more context and insight. Nothing specific is shared. Staff can rest assured that there's no feedback that they're going to share that will come back to haunt them in the future. We produce a final report with reasonable, actionable recommendations. And having conducted dozens of employee engagement surveys, we are the only company able to provide vet industry-specific benchmarking data so practices can see how they stack up against other vet practices worldwide. We found that after conducting an employee engagement survey, practices know exactly where they stand with their staff and are able to make transparent, meaningful changes that result in a more engaged workforce. Owners appreciate the insights into how their actions and the company culture are affecting their team. Some even conduct surveys on a regular basis to see how they've been progressing and to detect any brewing issues before they become significant. To learn more about the Oculus Employee Engagement Survey Package, head over to our website, oculusinsights.ca, send us an email at info at oculusinsights.net, or reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Mention that you're a Hire the Smile listener to receive a special discount on your own employee engagement survey. And we're back. So, Katie, you have one last article that sort of ties everything together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a really interesting one. Um, and I, you know, even the title of it made me kind of made my antenna go up when I when I came across it. So the name of the article is Celebrating Errors Creates Psychological Safety in the Workplace. This is by a gentleman named Neil Derek de Bivois, uh, from Forbes in May of 2021. 
this gentleman came up with a framework, a celebration of errors or COE, which I'll be calling it framework for dealing with errors. It's meant to create a safe psychological environment for employees, reduce problem avoidance, accelerate troubleshooting and innovation. So I thought it was pretty cool that this framework was put together. It demonstrates that you as a leader accept that people need to make mistakes in order to improve so that your business can achieve higher goals. And it comes from that idea, and we just talked about it, that people don't make intentional mistakes. You know, generally, unless you've made a grave error in your hiring, you have people who want to succeed. They want to satisfy their team. They want to do what's best for the clients. They want to make sure they're doing what's right in the eyes of their managers. So we really need to make sure that we're focusing on fixing the process rather than the person. And we see this time and time again, you know, especially when we have new staff or maybe a couple of new staff in the same position. It's like, okay, well, I'm assuming this person is doing their best if we're checking in with them and, and we've made a good hiring decision. So what is it about this process? You know, did we fall down in our training process? Is there something else that's holding this person back? And also, I really liked how they emphasize taking an impersonal approach to this. So a dispassionate look, you know, understanding errors without blaming or threatening anyone involved. It's easier to get to the root cause of the problem and help encourage employees to come forward when they find mistakes if they know they're not going to be embarrassed or demoted. And, you know, recently, or in the last uh, six months or so, I did an employee engagement survey and what I heard time and time again was at a certain sector of this rather large referral small animal practice that people were so terrified of making mistakes. Nobody wanted to make a decision. And there wasn't really somebody in charge of the operating room of the hospital. So there was a lot of confusion that went on and people were really just not able to be decisive and make things happen because they're like, oh, somebody's going to come by and I'm going to get in trouble for this. Or I'm going to make a mistake and we might talk about it, but then I'm going to hear about it again and again and again for months down the road. And that's not a nice thing either. Before you sort of apply the framework, what this gentleman talks about is you need to make sure you're removing the blame. Blame leads to shame. People fear repercussions. They hide their errors. We need to make sure that people can be open with themselves and with others. They can own their failures and accept the need to repair them. Punishing failure destroys innovation. I mean, you're going to fail when you're trying to evolve and you're trying to change. And I think that that's something that we see hamstrings are some of the clients that we work with who things are changing, their practice needs to change. What got you here isn't going to get you there, but they're just so terrified of, well, what if we screw it up? What if it's wrong? And it's like, well, what if, you know, what if you don't screw it up? Or what if you screw it up and you learn something from it? So, I mean, unless, you know, you're making a decision that impacts lives I think that you need to be able to be open to making mistakes, even not even calling it a mistake necessarily, but just calling it, you know, part of the process, even thinking about changing the language around that. There's a little tangent I went on there. So yeah, you know, removing the blame and just looking at things with a blank slate, blank piece of paper. So when to use the COE model, uh, if you've seen the same mistake occur a few times over, if it's a really bad mistake that you can't afford to have happen again. And if it's a basic mistake that the team shouldn't be making any longer. So the template has three parts. The first is to evaluate and address the impact of the error. And this is factually, it's not emotionally. So it's just short and sweet. What happened? Who did it impact? You want to use dispassionate language. You don't want to talk about the why here, just what happened and who it impacted. And the article talks about this being a great way to help build empathy for customers. 
you know, I think a lot of the time, and I definitely will admit to doing this in the past when I answered the phone and, and booked appointments, is you try and blame the client when something goes wrong. And it sort of builds up that wall between you and the clients. But if you say, okay, well, this is the impact on them, whether I think they were wrong or I was wrong, and it helps build that empathy. So it helps, helps you um, be motivated to solve the problem. The second step of the template is to come up with resolutions. So have a brainstorming session amongst the team, ID short and long-term resolutions. In the short term, you want to put out the fire. So if there's a client who's still unhappy, we need to talk to that client and address what's going on. Um, But in the long term, we need to think about what process or policy changes that we can make to uh, prevent this happening again. And even, you know, I think we can't always predict everything that's going to happen. I think the last couple of years have definitely proven that to us, but there just can be so many, you know, so many variables. We're humans, we're dealing with animals. You just never know. You can't prevent every, every issue as it comes up. But what you can do as part of this model is start to recognize a fire while it's still in the smoldering stage. So you could say, Ooh, this is sort of along the lines of X, Y, Z that happened two months ago when you say, okay, when this is what we determined then. So I thought that was interesting having that preventative or that proactive approach to things instead of just being reactive all the time. So step three is the fun part, getting to the root cause of really what went wrong. And it talks about, and I know you like this tool, using the five whys tool, which Mm. makes me itchy to think about because you really have to think hard. (laughs) It's a lot of work, but it's basically, okay, well, something happened and okay, well, why did it happen? And then, you know, well, why did that variable happen? Like you can go down this rabbit hole of, getting to the root cause of why something happened. And it's not necessarily, it's, it could be very far from where you started. We could probably do a whole podcast on the five whys and on problem solving. Absolutely. So I encourage people to, to Google it because it's really quite useful, as painful as it is. Basically, you know, as part of step three, again, you're IDing the actual root cause of what went wrong. For example, thinking about, we have new receptionists, let's say, and They screwed something up and a patient didn't get the referral that they needed uh, in a timely manner. And you could say, oh, this person's new and they just don't know what they're doing. It's like, okay, well, why don't they know what they're doing? Say, oh, well, they didn't get trained properly. Well, why didn't they get trained properly? Well, we didn't have time. Well, why didn't we have time? We don't have enough people. Well, why don't we have enough people? You know, so you can see how it goes down the the train and eventually Mm -hmm. you get to the end. You can put measures in place to fix the problem from that level, or at least recognize the problem from that level. And it's a real mindset shift. You know, we're creating psychological safety, having an open and communicative environment. It's trusting. We're also building accountability since the people involved are coming up with the solution. And you've heard us say that many times before, you know, if you want buy-in, then you have to have the people this is going to affect or the people who actually have firsthand knowledge of what happened help to build the solution and, and to move forward with it. So that was a really interesting article. And, and both of the ones that I talked about, it's like, oh, there's some learning about brain stuff, mm-hmm. feeling very smart. I mean, really interesting stuff. Do you have anything else to, to add, Mike? I thought this article was interesting that it talked about focusing on process over people. Yeah. I don't remember where I first heard about this or read about this way back when. It, it was a light bulb moment. But as you're developing psychological safety, people are apprehensive. And they're waiting for blame to happen because that's what always happens. It's easy to blame. And so I can see almost a physical change over people's faces when you're presented with this and you're going, well, 
it's unlikely that it's anybody's fault. Nobody really wanted to screw up. So let's look at the processes. And you, mm -hmm. you can see a shift like, oh, yeah. And let's look at what we're doing as a company to see if, you know, what we're doing has contributed to this error or this outcome that we weren't expecting. And then it becomes, as you were just mentioning, much more collaborative. People know the blame's not happening. Mm -hmm. You as the owner of the company or the manager, by right off saying that something of the process is people think, well, they're actually admitting that what they have created as an organization may be flawed. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, you have some self-reflection and some candor, transparency, vulnerability as a company. And then you start working on an outcome that's mm -hmm. good. It's impersonal, as we've mentioned. Yeah, I just to me, if you just say that phrase to people, well, it's unlikely it's a person or it's not a person as a process. Let's look at the process. It changes the mood in the room and people Definitely. then are together to look for that outcome. People punish themselves enough when they make a mistake. I mean, unless you've hired, you know, the wrong people, you know, people want to do a good job and I can guarantee you they're losing lots of sleep over a mistake. Mm -hmm. There's no need to pile on and to make it worse. Like, okay, let's, let's lift them out of that and have this not hamstring that, you know, make them unable to take risks in the future or to make decisions in the future. Let's just talk about the process, like you said. So yeah, super important. Good one. All right. Last section. Uh, we invite every episode, somebody to submit a question. If they mm -hmm. have an HR question or a situation in their own practice, send it to us and we will anonymize it for sure. As we mentioned before, you can always reach us at info at oculusinsights.net or any of our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. So Katie, you have a scenario that somebody submitted. I do. This is a good one. So uh, we've had a lot of employee turnover lately, even amongst employees who have been with us for five plus years. We recently delivered yearly performance reviews and provided relatively generous wage increases, thinking and hoping that it would be enough incentive for people to stay. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Do you have any suggestions as to what might be going on? We have a suggestion box in the lunchroom, but there's never anything in it. We're a mixed animal practice located in a rural area, so finding staff at all, much less experienced staff, is a challenge, and obviously we'd like to get a handle on this as soon as possible. So super common question. I really like this one. I think I'd start off by saying I commend you for finding time to do reviews right now and finding budget to do wage increases. You know, those are time and money are two things that are huge challenges for everybody. Looking at the language that you used, saying, you know, we recently delivered yearly performance reviews without having much more information. It makes me wonder how much of a self-review or how much of a collaborative process your review program is. Have you given people a chance to have a voice in their own performance? And I think more importantly, have you given them a chance to talk about how they feel about the company? I can't say what's going on specifically. Obviously, I don't have enough information, but I guarantee your employees know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Have you done check-in meetings with your staff uh, if they weren't part of the review process? Ideally, you'd have self-reflection as part of the review and have part of that being, is the company supporting you as much as it can, et cetera, et cetera. You've seen it, unfortunately, having a suggestion box isn't enough. You're really leaving it up to people to sort of submit something if they want to. And who knows why they aren't. Maybe they have in the past and nothing's happened or they're just not comfortable. Maybe it goes back to the psychological safety that we just talked about in this episode. But if you do a check-in meeting, and we've talked about them before, they should be sh relatively short meetings that happen on a regular basis, whether it's four, six, eight-week period. 
you could ask really simple questions, you know, what's going well, what isn't going well, and are you being supported? You know, those are, it can be as simple as that. And I would argue that depending on how you're doing performance reviews, doing these check-ins is as or more important than the actual, you know, yearly performance review. So you can ask something as simple as that, but there's also this concept of the stay interview. We do exit interviews or we should be doing exit interviews when people leave our practice. But what if we ask them before they get to that point, how they feel about things? There are lots of resources online that you can look up for for questions, but it's things like, what do you look forward to when you come to work every day? What keeps you working here? If you could change something about your employment, what would it be? How do you like to be recognized? This is a big one too. Are we using all your skills? Why or why not? And the important thing is to have uh, questions that are open-ended. So you don't want to have to pose questions that are yes or no questions, because I guarantee you the people that you really need to hear from will give you yes or no answers. Again, you can go online and get lots more, but you want to make sure that you're able to collect that candid and honest feedback. And if people aren't giving it to you, you need to have a look at yourself and maybe your leadership team and say, what is it that's preventing people from, from being comfortable and sharing this feedback? If you're new to, to sort of gathering this type of feedback, one caveat that I would say is it can be a challenge to remain neutral and not take feedback personally. But if you work on this skill, I guarantee that the staff will begin to trust that there's not going to be negative consequences for bringing up information or bringing up their tough feedback. And you'll be able to diagnose and treat those issues before they become reasons for people to leave. So yeah, checking in. If you don't ask, then you don't know. And unfortunately, the days of suggestion box being enough are just gone, I think, forever. <laughs> suggestion box, that's almost quaint. I know. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, I hope, uh, I think this is really a critical area that is often overlooked in practices that psychological safety. So mm-hmm. I hope uh, people listening uh, got something out of it and uh, hopefully they can implement that in their own practice. So, yeah. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.